impact messaging should be throughout the year. The stewardship process is as important, if not more important than the solicitation. When you look at it, you have to understand, you know, why does somebody make a gift and how do you articulate that impact to a wider audience? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the FYI for your institution podcast by Mongoose. I'm your host, Mike Kuczynski, and I'm lucky enough to be a client success lead with Mongoose. I work with about 80 of our 400 client colleges and universities. Today, we'll speak with Cutler Andrews, the Senior Vice President of Fundraising Consultative Services at Ruffalo Noel Levitz. He is a fundraising management professional with extensive experience in annual giving, major giving, alumni relations, and multi-channel donor engagement campaigns. His experience covers the fields of higher education, healthcare, fundraising, and community-based nonprofit fundraising. Prior to RNL, he served in annual giving and major gift roles at UNC Chapel Hill. Cutler currently resides in Durham, North Carolina, with his wife and two daughters. When not crisscrossing the country, he enjoys traveling, hiking, and riding his electric skateboards, trying not to break uh, any more bones. Cutler, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Not many aspire to grow up and raise money. How did you start in fundraising? Yeah, and I'll admit, neither did I. I, I fell into it kind of by accident. When I graduated, so was in college and kind of graduating college, my goal was really to focus on social justice issues. I was working at a rape crisis center doing education work. And while we were there, one thing that was always apparent to me was that the impact we would have or could have was was contingent on the amount of money that we were raising. Mm -hmm. And we were fortunate enough to get a, a grant from D. Smith Rental Foundation to pull a full-time consultant in to help build our program. The consultant was Gail Perry, who's still a friend of mine today, and also to hire our first development director. And, you know, it was interesting. I was I'm so used to talking in the community about uh, what we did and being young and naive, I felt like I could do anything. So I raised my hand and said, you know, I, I can do this job. And I was, they allowed me to do it. I had a consultant work with me for an entire year when I was starting out and I helped kind of build that program off the ground. So again, it was, it was purely by accident. And the more I got into it, the, the greater the need I saw and the more impact I saw we were able to have. And for, for me, Raising money was never about the dollars or the donors. It was about what those dollars and donors actually meant in terms of impact. That makes absolute sense. So from Chapel Hill to now working nationwide, what do you think are the most important lessons you've learned? It's how little we actually, that we actually know what we're doing. It's fascinating in the sector that it's changing so rapidly. And we've got these tried and true techniques and strategies that we've used for years and we believe are effective. And yes, in higher ed, we are raising more dollars year over year for the most part, but our donors have been on this 30 year decline. It's, I think we're finally getting to this point where we're realizing that we cannot continue in that strategy. So what we think we know works, we're starting to realize we, it, it's just not working. And that we need to take a lot more time to, to slow down, to understand our constituents, to do more market research, to understand how they communicate, what are the other forces that are out there that influence their philanthropic decisions. Those are all critical elements of things that, for the most part, traveling around, I don't see that happening on a, on a widespread basis. I think we assume we know what is important to them. And when we craft our messages and we 
try to articulate our impact, we think that that impact is, that is going to be important or that, that sense of loyalty over that person's you know, four to six years at, your, at that institution is really going to mean they're going to have a lifelong philanthropic relationship. And that's just not the case. And you, you sort of alluded to it, but what sort of pressures exist from other um, nonprofits uh, competing forces as well? Yeah. I mean, you look at nonprofits, the really big ones, the successful ones, they live and buy, die by donations. There's not other sources of income coming in like tuition or, or state funding or even some of these large grants in the same way. So they've had to become a lot more sophisticated in how they communicate, they drive impact, they steward those donors. It's also a little bit different because if you think about an organization like Charity Water, they're fairly singular in their mission. And so it's, it's pretty easy to articulate, okay, here's what we are here for, here's what we're doing, this is why you should support us, and this is the impact of your gift when you do support us. For an institution like my alma mater, University of North Carolina, there's so many ways they're impacting. It could be you know, health research, it could be you know, new chemistry research, it could be in the social sciences as well. There's a lot of different, and there's a lot of different reasons somebody would support or they might support beyond a sense of loyalty. And the institution had a, a different impact on people's lives in very different ways. If you were an English major versus a women's studies major, versus a biostat major, your relationship is gonna be categorically different. And also the challenge in higher ed is we're dealing with a much wider, diverse constituent base. Yes, you could have 22 year olds all the way up to 102 year olds that you're trying to work with uh, in solicitation and engagement. And that's a pretty big challenge when you're looking at a kind of this group of maybe, you know, it could be 20,000 people up to 700,000 alums that you're trying to market to. Absolutely. And can we, in higher education, take anything away or take any lessons learned from the very trendy or viral uh, fundraising campaigns, things like the Ice Bucket Challenge, for example? You can and you can't. You know, those are, again, are, are very impactful. They, they can, their target audience are, are millions and millions of people. You know, what they do is it does allow for kind of gamification of giving, which can, does, it has its place in higher education. It can help around giving days and crowdfunding and different challenges. It also does drive a little bit of a sense of urgency and impact and kind of that gimmick and, and it's leveraging different social media platforms. But you've got to understand you're not going to see the same result because yes, it can go beyond your standard constituent base. It's just not going to go that much beyond your standard constituent base. Even if Stanford is doing some phenomenal cutting edge research. A lot of people still think of it as being Stanford. They've got, they raise, you know, almost a billion dollars a year. You're not going to have that same relationship. But what you can learn from those is, is how do you leverage key influencers, key, key social media influencers in the industry? Mm-hmm. How do you leverage different forms of technology? How do you think differently? How do you drive impact? Uh, and how do you kind of create a, a buzz around it in a, in a really refined amount of time? In a crowded market space, when you're getting 500 plus marketing messages a day, you have other nonprofits who are highly sophisticated, highly impactful, asking for that attention and asking for gifts. There are nuances that you can leverage there 
to drive that excitement in your constituent base. That's great. And how, ultimately in your mind, how integrated should um, advancement or sort of a spirit of philanthropy be into the academic or administrative or student life uh, structures within a campus? It all runs together. It all creates a holistic experience there. So if you think about it, when we do market research, we can look at the data and there is a clear correlation between student satisfaction, your satisfaction with your time there as a student and giving. You know, we always, we joke kind of uh, annual giving can be the customer satisfaction score of an institution. <laughs> and it's hard to make that up. So to think about, like it's, it's part of it, what do you have wrapped around that student to help them graduate, to have the resources, to find a job after they graduate? Because that definitely will influence down the road. Also, what are those students learning about the impact of philanthropy at their institution? If you look at an institution like Princeton, you know, they'll talk about you know, this kind of culture of giving back that is instilled from before a student ever steps foot on campus. When they're there for their tours or they're being interviewed, uh, they're talking about there are people who came before them who laid the groundwork, who laid the foundation for that institution. And when you come and join part of that family, you have to take that torch so you can pave the path for the people to come behind you. And I think those things are critically important. So making sure there's that education from all sides of it. But in the end, we see oftentimes a disconnect between like a central Marcom office and the advancement office. And you have one group kind of pushing out marketing and communication materials around a variety of topics. Uh, and then you have the advancement team pushing out a whole different set. And there's not this core understanding of what that constituent experience actually is. So if you look at private sector, you wanna pull in private sector information into this or concepts into this, think of it like customer experience. What is that customer experience of an alum over a, tw just use a 12 month cycle. You know, I graduated 15 years ago. I've given eight times in the last 15 years. What does it feel like to engage with that institution as that alum? And oftentimes we have no idea. We don't know all the touch points they're getting, all the emails, all the direct mail pieces, all the social media feeds, what that is. And we have to take a step back and leverage and, and bring all of those players together who impact constituent experience to really drive more of an optimized outcome. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the customer or student experience, and if we look at two extremes, one uh, being academic outcomes and the other being student life and school pride and, and affinity, what percentage should we allocate um, on outcomes and what percentage should we um, allocate towards affinity? And keeping in mind that is obviously a false dichotomy. Yeah, and, and that's a really tough question. And, and the reason why it is because I think there's different things that drive students to come to an institution versus even impact their feelings of that institution afterwards. So you think about all the things that colleges and universities do to attract students. They, they spend a ton of money on kind of creating this culture, this environment, and having access to really big student recreation centers and having sports teams and this kind of feel of campus. Um, but after you're gone, that, that's still critically important. That, that sense of community and sense of family and coming back um, it's something that we see a significant impact on institutions when you think about long-term philanthropy of those schools who are maybe more heavily commuter schools versus those who are more residential schools. You know, so I do think it still needs to be a focus. 
But also in the end, when you're looking at what is the outcome you need out of there, there has to be a more intensive focus on career services, career placement, mentoring, that development to go into the workforce and feel like you have a marketable skill set there. So I do think it's, it's a solid combination. And I think there's, and they also lean into each other a bit. That tight culture, that tight knit family will establish that strong network that will serve you well beyond graduation. Uh, but also just knowing how to do an interview, knowing, a, bringing companies to campus to help recruit students. Those are all high, are really impactful things. I often see, candidly on, on kind of two ends, you see really good recruiting for students on the front end. And then you see kind of a good big advancement office on the back end. But then there's almost this underutilization of career services or underfunding of career services. And, and that, that impact as a, again, a father of two daughters who are young right now mm-hmm. and going to all the campuses I go to, if I think about what I'm looking for, I want them to have good education. I want them to have a, a, a strong focus on teaching, good resources kind of and to expose them to new ideas and wrap around them in terms of uh, student success models. But I also want them to make sure that when they leave there, they have a marketable skill set. They're ready to enter the workforce. They know how to write a resume and a cover letter. They know how to network. And they've maybe, maybe gone into internships and, and had that focus there. And I think there's a disconnect on that side. Absolutely. So you mentioned that uh, these things should exist for students when they are attending the institution, but are there anything uh, institutions can do to improve sort of that satisfaction or those outcomes once somebody becomes an alumnus or an alumna? Uh, certainly. Uh, we've talked a lot, of, a lot about this. Is that in order to kind of get somebody to come back or to be engaged, you have to first have a reason for them to come back. Yes, yes, they're, they're an alum. And they may have pride in that institution, but ongoing, like why come back? I mean, I went to UNC, love the institution, uh, but I don't often go to the website. I don't often come back. I get the emails, I give and so forth, but I don't have that kind of hook that brings me back in. So things like career services for alums. So if you're going through a career transition, um, to be able to have access to that or access to really interesting lectures or classes, like what MIT is doing, they put a lot of their classes online, open access, for me to be able to come back and, and see those and, and be ingrained in that culture again. Because there's, there's fascinating ideas that are coming out of the institution. There's great classes, but there's not a reason to come back as much. Also having a really well-established mentoring program. And again, these are all opinions in in my mind, but from visiting a lot of campuses, when it comes to, especially the millennial generation, this time and talent is often more important than money and how they give back. So if you can get them to give you their time and their talent, whether it's you recruiting new students or helping graduating students or developing this mentoring network, they will stay connected to that institution. And that connectedness will continue to grow and build into a long-term philanthropic relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I noticed you didn't say is events. And if I may editorialize, 
I think so many institutions think, let's create a community award or a, a hall of fame for athletics with events to bring people back. Do you think in some ways uh, those events have outlived some of their usefulness? I think they have. And I, I think in, for certain audiences, they're really important. Uh, when it comes to things around alumni relations and alumni events, it's one of the things I think what we assume in the, in the old model is that an event is one of the optimal forms of engagement. Now, for many groups, it is. It's a great predictor of if somebody is going to give or going to be engaged, an opportunity to reconnect back in. But for many people, it doesn't mean as much. And so what you should think about when you do events is really what is the end result you're trying to get? And when you, you should have the same kind of sort of kind of performance metrics associated with it and success metrics of the event as you would other things. And it's not just was the event good, did we get a lot of people there? But those people who came, did they help recruit new students? Did they give? Did they kind of help your, your graduate students find a job and when they came out in the back end. So were they engaged or did they just come to the event? And, you know, when you look at different types of engagement, it could mean for them that coming to an online lecture was as impactful or could be more impactful than if they came to an event or somebody, when you look at how do you actually measure engagement, if they shared a something on Facebook or Instagram or, or retweet something on Twitter, you know, those actually could be bigger indicators of connection and engagement than physically coming to an event. And again, when it comes back to it, we don't actually have to guess anymore. When you do really good market research, people will tell you what's important to them. So I think that is one thing we've neglected a lot is we have so many assumptions around what's important to our alums. We just have to ask. And, and I'm amazed when you actually do that in a, in a mindful way, how much they'll actually tell you. Absolutely. And, and so this is a really nice segue into the next question. In, in your research and in working with all the institutions you've worked with, um, at an annual giving level, what do you think actually drives alumni in general uh, to donate? You know, th there is still this sense of loyalty. I mean, it's, it's almost a sense of uh, gratitude and or obligation a bit that is instilled that, you know, it, I got my start because I went to this institution. So, you know what? I need to support that institution to give other people that start. That's a really, really big driver. Um, we recently did a study with, with a, kind of a small group of uh, liberal arts schools. And as, again, it's a, a small subset, but we asked the question is, do you believe your gift to your alma mater makes a difference? Now, these are institutions that have extremely high participation. I mean, you're talking about 40 plus percent, which most institutions would dream to have. But on average, only about 37% of their alums, and most of these are donors, believe their gift to their alma mater actually makes a difference. And that is scary because that puts, that it's a, it creates a very tenuous environment for the long-term sustainability of that institution. Because they're, those philanthropic dollars can get pulled away by other institutions or other organizations where impact messaging is far stronger. So that, that loyalty, the gratitude will only take you so far. You have to switch it over to drive impact. But I, I still think that's our, when you look at the primary messaging, that's the primary driver, which is also probably why we continue to see a decline in donors year over year. So what can schools do to drive that sense of impact? 
I think they need to figure out what it actually is. How are they actually impacted? And not what they think it is, but what it actually is. And also understand from their constituent basis. And again, not to kind of be a broken record here on market research, but that's a market research you can tell you. It can tell you, okay, well, this subset of alums over here is really interested in social justice. So when we talk about our impact messaging, we need to talk about how this institution uh, connects back to or impacts social justice issues. This group over here has really said, you know, they're interested in healthcare issues. So how is our institution impacting issues around healthcare? And so getting really refined around that's gonna be important. Mm -hmm. Also, we can't relegate all of the messaging around impact to the solicitation. Impact messaging should be throughout the year. It should be really strong in your stewardship. And to get that next gift, the stewardship process is as important, if not more important than the solicitation uh, in order to get that next gift. So I think when you look at it, you have to understand, you know, why does somebody make a gift? And how, did, how does that gift gonna really impact our, our how do you articulate that impact to a wider audience? Mm -hmm. How is this model or sort of these, um how does that change in regards to uh, major giving? Uh, major giving is different. So if you, you think about giving in a in kind of a wide array, of, there's types that we often talk about. There's transactional giving, which are you know, you're at the checkout and somebody you know asks you to you know give three bucks to this organization, or you're doing a, a campaign and you're just like just give me ten bucks for this. There's things that you don't really think about the impact. Then there's relationship giving. As I give because, you know, this is actually an important issue. My friends are doing it. Uh, and then there are lifestyle. There, it's just, it's part of what you do. And it could be a lot of kind of, you know, church giving is that way. Religious giving is that way. Uh, that's things around, you know, those people who they have to get their gift in every year. Like it's part of who they are to give to this institution. And then there's transformational giving. Transformational giving is what major giving is. It is this concept that I believe my gift, and you see it, is gonna make a meaningful impact, either like on an individual or a wide array of individuals. It's easier at that major giving level to see that, that you can easily connect back to and say, you know what, I know that this gift provides a scholarship for this student. And so I think those are the cases that are, are, are easier to make. I mean, they still do it. I mean, it used to be in a lot of organizations that $25,000 was a major gift. Some cases it's $250,000 or $2.5 million. But even still, it's, it is that belief that this gift will be transformative. And that's kind of that's how the difference is between kind of where major gift giving sits compared to those who do more of an annual gift. Absolutely. And do you find that it is tougher to, um, to solicit or cultivate um, gifts for things that are less tangible at the major giving level? Or is that sort of, sort of a, a myth that needs to be busted? No, I mean, it, it's definitely like, there is this drive for impact uh, at the major giving level, like the very direct. Yes, there's still people who are fine giving to buildings and put their name on buildings, or they do give large gifts to kind of get access. But you look at kind of what some of the large foundations and how they're leading the way. The Gates Foundation is a really good example. Like everything they do is, is outcome-based. And we're seeing that 
actually at all levels of giving, but really start at that high level that, yes, I will give you $50 million, but I want to see certain outcomes from this. Like I want to see this transform people's lives, either via research or access or other innovations. And to give large gifts to kind of this concept, uh, an amorphous concept is harder and harder. If you've got a lot of money to give, you most likely have some probably business savvy in order to do it. And so they almost take that same lens and put it on that gift. That's, uh, wow, fantastic insight. Thank you. Um, in terms of giving days, obviously, they, uh, I think it's, it's transcended popularity. I think it's become almost a, a required practice now for most institutions in, in terms of advancing. So what role should giving day play for institutions? I do think giving days are essential. I mean, whether it's a giving day or two days or a week, it's a concentrated effort that everybody on campus can focus around. And I think that's crucial. And that's why they're successful. It's, there's a giving day in itself is nothing magic. A giving day, it's the strategies that go into a giving day are what make it work. It is the uh, kind of condensed focus, is creating urgency, is leveraging challenges, is getting a wide array of ambassadors and influencers on board for this to really drive, to like kind of rise out of the kind of the chaos of everyday life to become at least for a short amount of time kind of at the forefront of people's mind. It does, it, it helps out a lot. If you think about if I just send, you know, a few letters a year, you know, a couple emails, I do some phone calls, maybe some texting, it's hard to kind of rise above all the noise that's out there. Given days enable you to do that. Now, how you execute on them is going to be critically important. Challenges are important. We often talk about even how do you leverage, you know, students. We had this conversation at one institution where they were trying to figure out how to use their call center. And I said, well, you think about your call center. How do you drive immediacy around this? So being able to call, leave a voicemail, immediately send a text message with the giving link, and maybe even follow it with an email. So it's this one, two, three touch point on somebody in a condensed amount of time to make sure they're driving a gift and giving them all the opportunities possible to make a gift at that time. It helps because spreading it out over a long period of time can, can lead to a lot of fatigue or annoyance um, as opposed to that one day where it can come together and really drive impact. That's great. And one of your colleagues, Brian uh, Gower, I, I saw and I, I really enjoyed his presentation on the donation equation. So in your mind, is there a formula or an equation to really d determine somebody's likelihood to give? You know, it's, there are, and every institution is different. And so what you want to be able to look at uh, for them, I, feel, I go even more granular because that's where I spend a lot of my time is I take all of the data they have and we do modeling because candidly, each institution tracks data in a different way. There's institutions that we do not know whether they came to an event. We don't know who got an email, who got a letter, or who liked a social media post. Any of those things are what their consistency in giving was. To me, to do that, that equation comes from a really in-depth uh, data analysis and taking as many possible data points that you can find and pulling them together to develop a really comprehensive predictive score. And again, you couple that with um, market research to add another layer on there as well. And you start realizing, is there a pattern? 
because the reality is every institution has a different history with a with their constituent base you know some could have had a really robust annually given alumni relations athletic program while others are in their infancy and they haven't had a lot of communication and so all of those unique elements are going to develop different equations in order to do that and so what you have to do is you have to take your own data and you have to look at your own constituent base and their understanding of their experience to really develop that that kind of honed in uh, uh, strategy for the year. And you have to even look at all of the channels that you have and that you can leverage. Many of them have just done the typical three. So it's mail, phone, email. But there are so many other channels out there now. I mean, it's like with you all and, and others, like texting is becoming a, uh, another way to have a very personal engagement. How do you leverage social media? How do you leverage uh, even unique types of regional events or other online events in, in different ways? And so, uh, you know, if I was uh, hired as a VP of advancement at an institution, I've been tasked with completely rewriting the rules at, at my school, I guess. What sort of things would you uh, work on first? Um, I would... I would forget in many cases what I think I know about the institution. I would look at what we've done. I would go have a ton of conversations. I would go talk to the alumni uh, population. I would do research with them. I understand from their perspective what this relationship is. You know, internally, we've got a ton of information about what we think that relationship looks like. I think going out to them and, and really understanding their perceptions around it. Look at all the data. Most you probably walk in and they've probably done an alumni survey. They've probably done student satisfaction surveys. You can look at their enrollment material. You can understand that student experience. And that helps you kind of create this picture there. And then think differently about how would you rebuild this operation? Do you have, you know, a, an annual giving office over here and a major giving office over there and your marketing communication and your prospect research? Or how do you bring certain groups together to refine that true constituent experience? And how do you make sure that it is optimized in a, in a manner that is maximizing your budget, but also the impact of those alumni? And that's a, it's a challenge because it's gonna vary if you've got a staff of 300 people or 30 people. And so all of that, I think you can refine in, in very different ways in order to optimize that experience. The reality is, is what we're seeing is this decline in alumni donors. It does not have to be the path forward. But if we don't drastically change how we operate, how we think, the tools we leverage, the information we gather, the way we engage, it will continue. But there's nothing out there that says we can't turn this around. You always do. Okay, I can guarantee I can probably walk into any institution. And if we look at this and we leverage it and we really kind of, you know, uh, walk with some, some of the tried and true traditional things that we know are not working in certain segments. And we leverage best practices from the private sector, from large nonprofits, from other areas, and just start experimenting, testing, and asking the right questions, we can turn this around. You've alluded to this older model of 
providing students a great experience and eventually reaching out and, and talking to those students who have now become alumni about continuing that uh, tradition of greatness through philanthropy um, from that alumnus or alumna. Has that model um, changed or is it broken? Uh, what does that look like moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it, it is changing. And I think it's changing because our perceptions around higher ed are changing, for one. Um, the amount of, you know, 20 years ago, the amount of student debt somebody graduated with is very different than the amount of student debt they're graduating with now. The economy was different. You would go into one job and you may stay in that job for most of your career. Now it is, there's a lot more mobility. We can't even keep track of people. Somebody graduates five years ago, they may have moved four times in the last five years. Um, everything about their life is different. So we, you know, you look at millennials, and this is a, kind of this cohort that everybody's trying to figure out right now. And they're worried because if you look at participation rates in, at universities, it's being driven down by uh, a lower, much lower performance than millennials. The reality is though, is millennials are one of the most philanthropic groups out there. They're just not giving to their alma mater. One, their relationship is different. Their student debt load is higher. There's all this chatter around kind of the excess in higher education or um, people graduating without, uh, you know, with, with large debt and no jobs. So there is a, a negative perception, even if it doesn't m meet their reality personally, this is what they're hearing. And also they see this institution has a $4 billion endowment. This one has a, you know, $800 million endowment. This one has a $20 billion endowment. The thought is why do they need my gift? Mm -hmm. And so I think what they have to do, the timeline now is really think about how do we engage them in different ways and not think about the only way that matters is if they make a gift. There's other ways to get them involved. So making sure that we are finding ways for them to feel remain connected and involved and impactful at that institution with their peer set and that, that kind of retain that sense of community with them. And then at some point they will, they will start, they may be making gifts through that time, but if they're not, they will be making gifts later on. So you have to think more holistically around what that overarching experience is you're trying to cultivate. Again, given the outcome, and we do want them to give because we want them to help kind of pave the way forward for, for other students to come behind them and to build a stronger foundation for those institutions for the next generations to come. But at first, we've got to make sure that we are kind of giving them, keeping them connected, giving them what they need, keeping them involved. Perfect. And so you've served as a major gift officer, correct? Correct. So you have a portfolio, you're reaching out, communicating, attending events with um, your potential donor. Um, what's your process uh, like and, and what would it be? Greg, I'm going to do that one again. So you have a portfolio and you're reaching out, communicating, attending events. What would your process be now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's constantly changing. So when I was doing it, you know, eight years ago, I think it's looking different than it is now. One, we have more data. So you've got a large constituent basis. First of all, it, it, it comes down to how do you identify the right people to start talking to? So you're not just kind of spending all of your time in this identification phase and trying to get people to meet with you and understand, do they even have capacity? Are there even interest here to do this? We're able to leverage different tools now 
in different ways to help us look at engagement. So the engagement scores that we talk about in annual giving can be leveraged also in major giving, the same sort of modeling as well. So how do we narrow that pool down? And then secondly, you know, how do you get an appointment anymore? You know, it's hard to get people to pick up the phone. You know, do we have their correct information? The data integrity within higher ed is still a tough thing. Uh, it used to be I would never have thought about sending a donor a text message or reaching out via LinkedIn. And in many cases, those are new channels to do it. So it's, you have to get in front of them. And then you, but the tried and true still comes to it. You still have to, you have to talk to them. You have to understand what's important to them. You have to listen to what's important to them. You have to forget, yes, you may be trying to, you hope they give over here, but ultimately they're going to give where their passion is. So if you are able to do active listening really, really well, then you'll be able to identify this. It's, for me, it's, you know, I was, when I started working at the Rape Crisis Center, I was actually a volunteer. I was on, on the crisis line. And one thing we talked a lot about when you're doing crisis work, whether it's uh, in any area, is this concept of active listening. It's being able to kind of get people to talk, to know when to not talk, and to have somebody feel engaged. Now, that is a, one of these tools that I've used in my entire life, professionally and personally. And with major giving, that is still key. And unless you can get them to kind of be inspired and to talk about it, because in the end, they're going to get themselves far more inspired, in my opinion, than you are. Mm -hmm. You can help show them the pathway, show them the impact, but they've got to start seeing it and feeling it for themselves and seeing and feeling how their gift can continue to make an impact there. Again, but at the same time, we have to be able to get smarter to make sure we're going after them. Like we, we were able, we're getting in front of the right people at the right time. So again, it's looking at all the data you've got in the database um, and it's looking at external data as well as whether they're wealth indicators. But in the end, if this is where that kind of the science and the art uh, come together to really develop a really solid strategy. That's great. And, and you alluded to this uh, as well, but when there is a disconnect between institutional priorities and a donor's priorities, how do you uh, navigate that? That is really difficult. And it's because it's one of the things that oftentimes institutional priorities come from leadership. Uh, I joke a lot when I walk in to an institution I'm doing consulting and they're like, well, here are campaign priorities. And I said, well, who cares? Um, because you might really care. And these things are cr critically important to you, but the people you're talking to, do they care? Is this important to them? Do they understand why these things are critically important? Have they been engaged in the process of actually building this campaign strategy out? You know, but in the end, if you actually look at most of the priorities, the core priority of higher education is to educate. And it is something that most of us can, can get around. If there are people who you know, are fully focused on you know, animal welfare and um, you know, that may not be your target audience. So it's understanding is that how do you still talk about education as being impactful? And then you drill down from there. Research could be critically important in certain areas as well. And then understanding what that is. It's, it's finding those connections back in. And ultimately what it has to come down to is you're not going to fit a square peg in a round hole. They don't, if they don't like this and they don't believe in it, you're not going to kind of twist their arm to give no matter how many phone calls you make and how many times you put a proposal in front of them, it's going to match with what they believe 
it's critically important there. But, you know, we, I think a lot of times we do things in higher ed fundraising that are fundraising, fundraiser focused. Brian Gower always says this. So about fundraiser focus, the things that are important to us. So campaign goals and priorities, all of those things, those dollar values, they're really people that are important to our fundraisers. They're not as important to the donors. Impact is important to donors. Mm-hmm. So we have to flip it and we have to kind of focus around that instead. That's fantastic. And so uh, I imagine that you're in a situation, you've, you've done all of the, the right cultivating, you've, uh, you know, you've, you've created a great proposal. How do you know when somebody is really ready to, uh, to make a gift or when you're really ready to make that ask maybe? Yeah, I used to joke that you don't, if you're really good, you don't ever have to actually ask them. They usually tell you and they kind of indicate that's not always true. Um, it, there's a little bit of a dance and sometimes you have to ask because um, you just don't know. I mean, again, they're going to talk about interest. They're going to start, they'll be able to have these indicators about, you know, if I do this, I can really see this impact happening. They'll start kind of talking to the first person about how, what they're doing will, uh, will drive either success or engagement with other students or impact on students or access for students or advancements in research. And they'll, they'll start using this first personal language and that is usually an indicator that they're ready, but they may not be. So, you know, at, at some point in time, it's, it's like anything in your life. You, you just, you just have to kind of jump off the cliff and do it. And they'll tell you no, if they're not going to do it or, They'll give you a softener, then you go think about it, but you'll never know unless you actually make the ask. Now, if you're, you're hasty, I will never forget um, a, a, a donor saying this to a dean that I knew at one point in time who really kind of rushed to the ask. Uh, and, you know, it just kind of came out and did it, and really without much. And his response was, you can't forget the romance. And that was a kind of a weird way to put it, but there is this element of the, he was talking about kind of the cultivation and the soft skills of it. It's not all about that ask. It's about everything else that goes around it. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, Color, that is uh, fantastic insight. Thank you. And uh, I guess what are some of the other projects you might be working on currently that you'd want uh, folks at uh, Mongoose or especially beyond to know about? Yeah, I think for us, what we're really, we're working on right now is how do we reimagine consulting, market research assessments within higher ed? I think there's a, there are phenomenal thought leaders out there and it's by no means disparage any of them. But it's when we kind of took on this idea of reshaping or looking at consulting in a different way, we try to figure out what could we do different. So we have our group consists of, yes, consultants, but also, you know, full-time researchers, so people who are taking all of this data and trying to learn from the data and develop strategies around the data and produce the data out, which is primarily what Brian Gower does for us. And then we have a data scientist who comes from the private sector who focuses, has focused on, you know, consumer data modeling. So we are, we're trying to pull all of these strategies from different areas to develop, can we a better mousetrap of it? And for us to understand, you know, on an individual institution basis, and then at an individual constituent basis, what is going to drive sustainable growth? 
There are so many gimmicks out there to drive participation, but when we look at long-term viability, how do we make change that's going to benefit the institution for generations down the road, not the next five years? And so that is what we're really focused on. So like, again, heavily market research, heavily invested in donor personas, engagement score and modeling, all wrapped around consultants. So it, it's actually putting the, the data first and wrapping the consulting around it, not, to, not doing the consulting and leveraging the data to support what we're saying. So you kind of walk into a program and figure out, you know, there's so much I don't know. I'm not going to pretend I know anything about it until I start getting to the core of, uh, of all of their information. That's great. And Cutler, we ask all of our guests uh, when they join a podcast episode, what would you call this episode and why? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I would probably call it reimagining advancement because I think in the end, this is what we have to do. We have to take a, a huge step back and say, you know what, what's working, what's not working, and let's reimagine this because you know what, it's not working. Um, the donor numbers tell us that. Yes, the dollar numbers can are this this head fake that will point us in the wrong direction a lot of times and kind of make us believe that there's this great future in higher ed philanthropy. That's not the case. The donors are your leading indicator for future success. And if we keep losing those, we will not have, you know, in 20 years from now, it'll look drastically different. 50 years from now, it'll look drastically different. So how do we reimagine this from the perspective of our, of our constituents and drive a renewed success in this area? That's amazing. Well, Cutler, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we all greatly appreciate it. Likewise, I appreciate it. Take care. And thank you for listening. If you have any questions or if Mongoose can help you in any way, please feel free to email me, mike at mongooseresearch.com. We also have lots of great content at mongooseresearch.com, on Twitter at mongooseHED, and on Facebook at we.rmongoose. Until next time, thank you.